0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we are going to be in Mark 15, so it's going to serve you to have a Bible out, open on your lap, ready to go, Mark 15. Um, And as you're turning there, you might also just kind of put a thumb in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be there first. So Mark 15. So if you're new with us, we are in the kind of the closing couple of weeks of a long set of sermons through the gospel of Mark. We have spent like the last year and a half um, in Mark, and so we are coming to a close next week. And so um, with that in mind, we're to the last parts of this narrative in Mark 15. And to make sense of what is happening in this scene in Mark 15 that we're going to be in this morning, we've got to do a lot of groundwork to get there. We've got to unpack just some of the biblical themes uh, that that specifically tie into this passage in particular. And to tie into that theme, we need to go all the way back to Genesis 2. So to just prep ourselves for what we're going to see in Mark 15, We've got to see what happens in Genesis 2 and 3. And so Genesis chapter 2, I'm actually going to put this on the screen for you just for easy access. If you want to take advantage of that, you can. This is Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. I want you to just get a sense of what's going on way back in the beginning parts of the Bible and how that intersects with with Mark 15. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to the beast or to every beast of the field. But Adam was not uh, there was not uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that sets the context for you to hear verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let me read that one more time. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now verse 25 is showing us something that is massively important. When it's talking about the idea of being naked, here's what it means. That man and woman, Adam and Eve, our first parents were in the garden and they were absolutely 100% fully known. There was nothing hidden. There was no sort of corners they were hiding behind. There was was no tendency in them to want to cover. They were completely known. And here's what the Bible is telling us in verse 25. In in the middle of them being completely known, there was no shame. No, No shame. Okay, so think about what, what the Bible is telling us here. It's telling us something about God's original intent and his original design. That God created our first parents, and I'm going to use these two words to describe it, for both innocence on one hand and honor on the, on the other. That they were, they were fully known and they were guiltless. They had no guilt in them. They were completely innocent. There was nothing to hide in their life. There was no shame. It was all honor. They were created in innocence and honor. Now that was all going great for about two chapters of the Bible. And you just read forward about six verses and it all goes bad. So you get to chapter three and it starts with this you know ominous sort of a verse. Um, in chapter one of verse three, it talks about, you know, there was this serpent, he's more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. You just know bad things are on the horizon. Eve is quickly in conversation with this serpent, and it all goes downhill from there. Adam and Eve in verse 6, they both eat the forbidden fruit. And then you get to verse 7 of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 7 shows the effects of sin, the tragic effects of sin. And here's how it describes it. Remember, in, in 2.25, they were naked and unashamed. Innocence and honor, that's what they were. And now you get to, to verse seven of Genesis three, and here's what you've got. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now just think about what happened in, in seven verses. For Genesis chapter two, it was innocence and honor. Seven verses later, all of that innocence and honor is traded for guilt and shame. Chapter two, they're innocent. Chapter three, you've got guilt. Chapter two, they're, they're completely honored. They felt no shame. But then you get to chapter three, seven verses later, and they're full of shame. They're hiding in their shame. They're doing what what people who are feeling their guilt and shame do. They cover themselves. They hide from God and one another. In seven verses, now think about that. In seven verses, they they go from this God-given innocence and honor to this serpent and sin-giving guilt and shame. Seven verses. Now, let me just kind of work through some of the nuances of guilt and shame. Let me kind of do this around three kind of topics. Let me just first kind of define what guilt and shame are. Guilt and shame defined. Let me give you kind of a working definition of guilt. Guilt is a lot easier to deal with. It's a little easier to understand. Guilt is the objective reality that I have committed an offense or a crime. So, so guilt happens in the courtroom. It happens when you go into the courtroom and you realize there is a perfect standard and I have not measured up to that standard. It's when God says, don't eat from this tree. Adam and Eve eat from that tree. And now God brings them into his court and they realize we have sinned against God. We have committed a crime against God. We have rebelled against God. And God has pointed that out. That's guilt. A little easier to get your hands around. It's in the courtroom. You have, you've done something wrong. You're legally held liable for that now. You are guilty. That, that's guilt. Shame, on the other hand, is much more Wiggly. It's a lot harder to kind of get your hands on. So, so where guilt is the objective kind of reality that, that I have done wrong, I've failed to meet a standard. Shame, on the other hand, is the subjective experience. See, one's objective guilt, the other is subjective. Shame is the subjective experience of feeling humiliation or distress because of what I have done. So, so guilt is this objective I have done wrong. Shame is the feelings that get associated with that. It's the humiliation and the distress caused by it. So where guilt happens in the courtroom, the gavel slams down, you're guilty. You've you violated the objective standard. Where, where guilt happens in the courtroom, shame happens in the community. Shame is when your guilt goes public before the eyes of other people. That's shame. It's those feelings of humiliation and embarrassment and defilement and uncleanness and dirtiness. All of those things are shame. So while while guilt and shame are close companions, it's important for you to see there is a distinction between them. One is objective, the other is subjective. so, So there's important differences. And now it's interesting to think that when the Bible is addressing both guilt and shame, that the Bible talks about shame And and all of its synonyms, so think of nakedness, think of dishonor, disgrace, uncleanness, defilement, all of those would be synonyms for shame. It talks about shame ten times more than guilt. Ten times more. It addresses the the idea of shame than it it does guilt. Now listen to how, how Ed Welch describes shame. He says it this way. In his book, Shame Interrupted, and if, by the way, if this sermon resonates with you today, you should probably grab that book. I think it would do a really robust way of helping you if you're really struggling through this right now in particular. So in his book, Shame Interrupted, he describes it like this. This should be on the screen for you. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. Could be in any one of those avenues. Something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. He goes on to say, you feel exposed and humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. Something you did. You were treated as less than human, something done to you. Or you were associated with something less than human. And then this last phrase is the key. And there are witnesses. Other people have seen that. Other people know that that you have done something less than human, been treated as less than human, or associated with something less than human. And all of that happens under the communal gaze of other people. This is, this is shame. Now, let me give you some, some of the language that goes around shame. When, when we're feeling things of shame and we're feeling the things you know, around shame, here would be some of the language of the soul of shame. So shame has this sort of a language inside of us. We feel inferior, alienated, embarrassed, ridiculed, weak, powerless. We feel like a failure. We feel like we're different from everyone else. We feel insulted, rejected, inadequate. You ever have thoughts of that? Humiliated, ignored. You feel like you're a loser. All of those thoughts would come around shame. That's the language of shame. Now, but let me, let me try to make this distinction. Here, let me try to show you what the difference is between being embarrassed and being, you know, the feeling of shame and, and really living in shame. Imagine that moment where somebody asks you to say, hey, what's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? I'll promise you in that moment, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna pick a story that you were embarrassed in and had the feelings of embarrassment, not the feelings of shame. See, here's the difference between embarrassment and shame. Embarrassment has a way of wearing off with time so that a year later when you tell the story, you can laugh with everyone else about it. That's embarrassment. But listen to this. Shame, you can never laugh at. You can never laugh at shame. So shame is like an intensified form of all of the language you just heard. Maybe you could think of shame in these sort of words. This this would, I think, give the real raw language of of the soul. Rather than embarrassment, it would use words like this. Unclean. See, this is the intensity that shame has to it. Dishonored, filthy, shunned, disgusting, defiled, an outcast, unlovable, discarded, repulsive, disgraced, worthless, see not just inadequate, but you feel worthless, loathed, scorned, and vile. That's the raw language of shame in the human heart. That's what it sounds like when it comes out. That's what it feels like deep in your bones. See, shame combines these three experiences. It combines the the feeling of nakedness, of I'm exposed and the whole world is seeing this. That sort of vulnerability, it combines that with the feeling of being rejected and an outcast, like you don't belong, with the feeling of being dirty and contaminated. And that dirt goes so deep in your soul that it's not like you can get in the shower and just rub it off. It goes way deeper than that. This is the feelings of shame. Now, let me kind of work at it from this angle. Let me talk about the the interplay between guilt and shame, how these two things work together. See, at its best, here's how guilt and shame should work. This is the healthiest way for them to interact. Guilt and shame should work together. So just play this out. So guilt and shame should work like this. You sin, in other words, you've done something wrong, therefore you feel guilt for that. Like you know that you have not met the objective standard. You know you've fallen short of that objective standard. Therefore you feel shame. Now that's the healthy way for it to work. That's when they're working together. You do something wrong, therefore you feel shame for what you did wrong. But it's this is the point. It's an actual wrong. It's like an actual sin. That's the idea of it working together. You actually do a sin and then you feel shame for that sin that's how they should work together. It's, it's leading us back to God knowing. It's, it's how God looks at us and says, there's better for you, there's more for you. I've got more for you than this sin. See, when guilt and shame are working together, it should function like a check engine soon light on your car. You know that dreaded sign on your car? That light you never wanna see, Right? That's showing you, you've got a problem with something in your car. And this is when guilt and shame are working together, this is what they're producing. It's like the check engine soon light flashing in our life saying, the engine of your life, your heart, there is something gone wrong here. So pay attention to that. Okay, that's them working together. But guilt and shame can also work separately. They can work independently of one another. So think about it in one way. You can be guilty and feel no shame. You can actually do a wrong against God and feel at peace about it. No no shame associated with it. Now, here's the other side of it. You can feel shame when you have not committed a wrong against God. This happens all the time for people. You're, You're not actually sinning, you're not actually guilty before God, but you feel a deep sense of shame. If you talk to any victim of sexual abuse, you can just mark it up. This will be one of the deep things that they're struggling with is the shame of that moment. Now isn't that ironic? Because they did not sin. It wasn't their sin that caused the abuse. They were sinned against, and yet they had this deep feeling of shame. This is what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 13 when Amnon um, violated his sister Tamar. She she looked at him and said, where am I going to take my shame? She did not sin in that episode. She did nothing wrong. He was the one that sinned against her, but yet she felt such a deep sense of defilement and dirtiness in the midst of that. And that that defilement and dirtiness was so deep in her soul that it wasn't like a bath was gonna fix it for her. See, she'd done nothing wrong, but she felt that. And people, and I think this is what happens to a lot of us in the room, we have all sorts of things that we associate with shame, although there is no guilt involved in our life. Some people feel shame because they make too much money, some people because they make too little money. Some people feel shame because of their parents, who they were, what they did. Some people feel shame because of their kids, what they are doing, who they are right now. Some people feel it because of their spouse, who they are, what they're doing right now. Although we have not done anything wrong, that that shame associates with us. See, this is when they're working, you know, independently of of one another. I told Lori this story last night. This is just another one of those illustrations of it i told her the story about missing a field goal. This is like rival. We're playing our crosstown rival. I'm a sophomore on our football team. I was doing a little bit of kicking back in the day. It was short-lived, didn't last long. And uh, we we scored. We weren't expected to to beat them. They they were ranked really high. We were just going to be mediocre that year. And we score with like a minute left on the clock. All I had to do is make the extra point and we beat them. And I missed it. It went into overtime and we lost. And I, Hey, don't laugh, because that is not a laughing thing to me right now. <laughs> but I was telling her just what a deep sense of shame I felt for that. I, I hadn't broken any sort of an objective wrong, but I just felt such a deep sense of embarrassment and exposure that I, I'm telling you the story right now, and I don't like talking about that story. It still feels that way. Although there wasn't any sort of a guilt, you know, in that moment, I still had this deep sense of shame. This is them working independently of one another. But they can also work against one another. There are times that you can be guilty, yet feel proud about it and honored in your guilt. In your disobedience to God, you can actually feel like, you know, I'm the person that's, that's beaten my chest and have accomplished something. You can actually do that. And at other times, you can feel shame for doing the right thing. This is them working against one another, grating against one another. This is why the Bible so often encourages us not to be ashamed of the gospel because Paul knows, the the biblical authors know, that there's going to be many times in a Christian's life where you're doing the right thing. You're actually being obedient to God and walking with God and following God, yet you're going to have shame associated with it. Because it's not measuring up to the standard of the crowd around you. So he's encouraging us, don't be ashamed of the gospel. So this is all the interplay of how guilt and shame had this way of working together. Let me just tie this last thing together here. Last thing I want you to know about guilt and shame is that it is a universal experience. Guilt and shame are universal. If you're a human being in this fallen world then you know what it feels like to be under guilt and shame. You can open up in any place of the Bible. You just open up at random, and here's what you can know. In that moment of you opening up at random in the Bible, the Bible is speaking to and for people who are living in shame. It is a universal human experience. I love how Ed Welch in his book, Shame Interrupted, he says it this way. This isn't going to be on the screen. Just listen to this. He he teaches this counseling class, you know, year in and year out. And he has this moment where he's going to ask them the question, do you feel shame? And and just listen to how this kind of played out. He said, I asked a group of 100 students if they experienced shame. He said, not too many people want to acknowledge shame in their life. So I didn't expect many to raise their hands. Maybe a few auction-like, you know, finger twitches or head nods. He went on to say to the class, we're going to talk about shame today. Have you ever experienced shame? That was the question to the class. And he went on to say, I hoped at least one person would come to my rescue. Then, as if to guarantee that no one would raise his or her hand, I added this. Who has experienced debilitating shame? He goes on, immediately the entire class raised their hands in unison. Now what's that showing us? It's showing us that we all, this is part of the human experience. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned, therefore they felt guilt and shame. Just like them, because of our sin and we're living in a fallen world where we're going to be sinned against, we are all going to experience shame feelings of nakedness and humiliation and exposure and rejection and dirtiness and defilement. That's that's a universal thing for us. So here's what I know right now in this room. Every person here right now knows this feeling. Now, you might've done a better job of covering it up and you might have some better coping mechanisms, but it is in this room, in every one of our hearts, these sort of things. And just as an aside, it is leading to all sorts of weird things in our life. Shame left untapped and unaddressed leads to anger, it leads to abuse, it leads to pornography, it leads to a million other vices in our life. But it's here, it's in this room. Now the question of the morning is this, what are we to do with our shame? What do we do with it? And and let's all just see this, that shame does not exist in the shallows of our heart. Now listen to this. It does not exist in the shallows of your heart or the shallows of my heart. Shame exists in the very like deepest depths of our soul. So listen, superficial remedies for shame will never work. If you just like flip on and you get the pop psychology answer to shame, here's what it's gonna be. You need to start telling yourself how good you are. That is a superficial, shallow remedy that will never address the problem of shame. See, if, if we want a remedy for shame, we've got to have something with enough size, with enough you know, mass to it that can dive all the way down into the depths. I'm talking the deepest places of our soul to address it. Superficial things will not work. So welcome to Mark 15. Mark 15. So I've, I've said this several times as we have addressed really the last week of Jesus's life and in particular, the last few days and hours of Jesus's life, that all of these scenes through Mark 13, 14, and 15, all of these scenes make up the raw material that makes up the good news of Jesus. What we're seeing, the raw material that makes the good news of Jesus good news. So if you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ as this massive beam of light shining into this room, These chapters right in through here, these scenes in the last few days of Jesus' life, that they kind of form this diamond that that gets inserted right into the beam. And when the the light hits that diamond, these, these chapters, it gets diverted. That big, massive beam gets diverted into all of these smaller beams for us to take a look at this beam in particular, this moment, this scene in particular, and how this part of the good news of Jesus applies to our life. And this chapter, is, or this particular text, is just like that that this chapter is breaking apart the good news of Jesus and it's giving us one particular theme of the good news, one particular way that this good news applies to your life and to my life. So I'm gonna read this passage for you and I want you to ask the question, what is Mark showing us here? What is the main idea that Mark is is uncovering and, and trying to raise to the surface for us? So here it is, starting in verse 16. Mark 15, verse 16 says this. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Not one, not two of them, but the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Verse 24, and they crucified him, having divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews... And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Verse 31, so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You know, The Passion of the Christ came out several years ago. Mel Gibson, you know, created it. And it's this whole, you know, movie that brings into sharp focus the physical agony of the cross. And it is serious agony, isn't it? If you've watched that movie, you've probably got scenes burned into your brain on the horrors and the dark hues that are associated with with the physical pain of the crucifixion. But isn't it interesting in this passage how little space Mark gives to the physical pain and agony of the cross? I mean, that's just an interesting thing to observe, isn't it? I mean, look at verse 15, right above the passage we just read. There's four words at the end of verse 15 that go like this. And having scourged Jesus. Now that's four words that describe a horrible physical scene. Intense agony, physical agony. Um, Early church historians would write and tell us, that it would be often the case when a person was scourged that their internal organs and their spinal column would be left completely exposed. That's the physical horrors of being scourged. And isn't it amazing that when Mark talks about it, he just gives it four words? Just four words, and they took him out and they scourged him. That's about it. And then look at verse 24. Another four words. And they crucified him. Now, crucifixion, is a terrible way to go. It's a painful way to go. And it just gives four words to describe the pain of it. There's no sort of, and they put this nail through there, and it tapped this nerve, and just got killed. There was none of that. Four words that just say, and they crucified him. Isn't it amazing how in this passage, the physical pain is de-emphasized? Now here comes the question. The question is, what is emphasized? What is Mark trying to bring into sharp focus for you and I to see when we read this passage? What is that? Answer, the shame of the cross. Although the the cross was a physically terrible way to go, Mark's description and his account of of Jesus' crucifixion isn't told in such a way where he's maximizing the physical pain of the cross. Rather, it's being told in such a way where it's maximizing the social shame of the cross. That's the point. Now, let me just kind of point this out as we read through the story again. I'm gonna invite you to just read through this, these little passages that I give them to you, and let me kind of do the narrating as you read through them. So start in verses 16 through 20. I want you to see that in this passage, shame comes from every corner of it. There's no person in the passage that is not heaping shame upon Jesus. So watch how it plays out. Verses 16 through 20. This is the Roman soldiers. You see it in verse 16 through 20? Um, above that little section in the ESV it says the mocking of Jesus. This is what's happening here. So you get the whole battalion. It's not one or two of these guys. They get the whole battalion out so that they can all see what's about to happen to Jesus. And then they strip him down. They put this purple cloak on him. They get this twisted crown of thorns and they cram it onto his head and then they salute him. They hail him as king of the Jews. Here's our king, and they give him this scepter, uh, Matthew tells us. And in Mark, they take the scepter from him, and then they begin to hit him with the scepter. They they begin to spit on Jesus. They begin to mock Jesus. Now, what is happening here? Shame upon shame is happening here. Keep keep reading. Look at verses 21, 22, and 23. This is the episode with Simon the siren. Now, on the first glance, Um, Simon is not a person that is involved in the crowd heaping shame upon Jesus. But take one step back and ask the question, what is happening in this scene? And here's what's happening. Jesus is so weak in this moment that he can't do the one last thing that would give a man dignity in this moment. Carrying his own cross to be crucified on it. He can't even do that. So Simon is having to do that one last act of digni- you know, dignity. Simon's having to do that. What's happening in that moment? Shame upon shame being heaped on to Jesus. Look at uh, verses 24 through 27. This is the cross. This is, they've actually put Jesus up on the cross now. So so ask yourself, what's happening here? Look at verse 24. They're casting lots, you know, for for his garments. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus wasn't just put on a cross. That means he was stripped naked and then put on a cross. Is there anything more exposing than being completely naked in front of a group of people? I mean, just think about a moment where you like get deep pants or you are exposed like that in front of a crowd of people. It's humiliating. What's happening here? Shame being heaped onto Jesus. Keep reading though. Look at verse 26. Above Jesus is a sign. It read, this is the king of the Jews. This man being crucified like this, that's the king. It's a, it's a term of just absolute mockery. Th- then keep going. Look at verse 27. He's being crucified between two thieves. This is the sinless son of God, guiltless son of God, crucified between two common thieves in this moment. Shame upon shame. Then look at the crowd. Look at verses 29 and 30. As the crowd is passing by, it says in verse 29, that they derided him. They're wagging their heads at him. Just shame upon shame. Oh, you were the one that said, you're gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's interesting since you're dying on a cross. It's just shame upon shame being heaped on him. Then look at the chief priests and the scribes in verses 31 and 32 says they're mocking him. They're looking at him and saying, you know, it's interesting, Jesus, you saved all of these other people, but it's just interesting how you can't save yourself. So if you want us to believe in you, why don't you save yourself and come on down and show us that you can do that? It's just shame upon shame being heaped onto him. And to make matters worse, look at verse 32 in these thieves. These thieves are in the middle of their own shameful death. And somehow there was an ability that they had to look so far down at Jesus in his shame, in his disgust, in his defilement, in his uncleanness, in his rejection. They could look so far down at him that they could kind of muster up the last ounces of their own energy to hurl insults like arrows against him as well. Reviling him. Two thieves in the midst of their own shameful death. Now here comes the question. What is Mark showing us? What, what is the point of this passage? Here's the point. Mark is going to great lengths to show us this, that Jesus endured on the cross unspeakable shame. And that unspeakable shame came from every single person around him. This is what Mark is going to great lengths to show us, is that it wasn't so much about the physical pain of the cross, it was about the debilitating shame of the cross. Now, why is Mark pointing that out? What, what is he wanting us to take from that? What is he wanting us to see in a moment like this? Well, let's just start here. I think this would be a good place to start is that if you're right now racked with shame, I mean, you feel it down to the core of your soul. Here's what you can know about God. He is not immune to that. He does not turn a deaf ear to that, that you have a God who hears that. Just hear, can you just take a moment to hear that this morning? For all of us in the room that feel worthless, despised, rejected, scorned, that we're just self-loathing, we feel such a deep sense of that shame. Can we just take a minute to know that this passage is showing us that God cares about that? That he really does care about that? But secondly, and maybe more importantly, we can see this in this passage. That Mark is showing us not a superficial solution to our shame, but for the deep remedy. The thing in the universe that has the mass and the size that can dive all the way into the deepest places of our soul and solve our problem of shame. Here's what Mark is saying. That Jesus endured unspeakable shame from everyone in this passage so that you don't have to endure unspeakable shame. He's showing us that, that he endured shame so that your shame can be lifted. He, he, he endured the disgust of the cross so that your distrust and your contamination and your self-loathing can be lifted from you. That's what he's showing us. Now, what, what Mark puts in story form here, Paul puts in real plain language in Colossians chapter 2. This is going to be on the screen for you. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. And listen to what Paul says here. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you deserved guilt and shame. That's who you were. But now God is going to do something. God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Verse 14. How did He do that? By canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 14 is showing us this. That on the cross, God has dealt with our sin and our guilt. It is dealt with. That God has taken every one of our sin, our past sin. You know all that stuff that riddles you in your past? He's taken all of that past sin. He's taken all of your present sin that you brought in this morning with you. He's taken all of that and all of your future sin that you haven't even thought about committing yet. He's taken all of your past, present, future sin. He's nailed all of that to the cross. And he has given you God, you know, his perfect standard of righteousness met for you in Jesus. He's given you all of that. He's showing us that, that that our sin and our guilt have been fully and finally paid. And that's great news, isn't it? That ought to cause a little bit of rejoicing somewhere deep in our soul. But listen, as good as that is, it's not all the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 15. He doesn't just deal with our, our um, sin and guilt. It's, it's even better than that. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So on the cross, it's not just God dealing with our sin and our guilt. It's God dealing with our shame, the shame of our sin, the the shame that Satan hurls at us and, and, and puts on us. He deals with all of that. Now, how does he deal with all of that shame? He deals with all of that shame by shaming Jesus for us. In a very real sense, Mark is showing us that Jesus both shared our shame and bore our shame. And in Jesus sharing and bearing our shame, that is the only hope for our shame to be lifted. This is what he's showing. that In a very real sense, the cross of Christ has put a death to your sin. It, it's, it's created a grave and it's taken all of your sin and it has poured it into that grave. But here's the good news. The cross of Christ didn't just put your sin in that grave. It also put the shame of your sin in that grave the disgust and the defilement of sin in that grave. It put all of that in there too. Now, let me just kind of land the plane with a couple of things here. I I, I think it's interesting to just, to get a sense of kind of the inner workings of how shame kind of works itself out in our life. And one thing that, that I've become aware of and just trying to be a gospel minister to people is that I think for most people, we have a much better view of how the good news of Jesus deals with with guilt, the guilt of our sin, then we do the shame of our sin. I think for most of us, especially if you've been around here for a while, you probably have developed even a vocabulary to talk about how the good news of Jesus deals with our guilt. My sin has been given to Jesus and his righteousness has been given to me. Guilt, gone, sin, gone. We've got that sort of awareness working. But I don't think most Christians know how the good news of Jesus also applies to our shame. Not the guilt of our sin, but that feeling of dirtiness that goes with our sin. That feeling of rejection that goes with our sin. I don't think we've got a good vocabulary for that. And this is what I'm trying to to help bring light on this morning is Mark 15 gives us the vocabulary. Jesus shared our shame and he bore our shame so that our shame can be lifted from us so that we don't have to live in shame. We don't have to live in defilement and uncleanness anymore. But here's the other thing that's interesting to think of with shame. I think for most of us, guilt is a lot easier thing to deal with in our life. We're in the courtroom. We hear God's pronouncement. You, you know, I get your sin. Jesus does. You get Jesus' righteousness. We walk out of the courtroom knowing we're free. I mean, we, we're actually, we're no longer guilty before God. I think a lot of us have a vocabulary and kind of a, a sense of that. We kind of get that. But I think when it comes to shame, it's much harder to deal with. Shame is like that that deep residue or that deep stain that our guilt that has been paid for kind of leaves behind it. And it doesn't just wash off of it. I I, I like how one one guy said it. He says, you know, when shame gets entrenched in our hearts and and it goes deep in our hearts, it is not on the shallows of our souls. It's in the deep places. And when it gets entrenched in our heart, I, I love how he said it. He said, it's a squatter that refuses to leave. This is what it feels like. Like We're putting signs up on the building of our hearts saying, you're not welcome. But shame isn't listening. I mean, we're, we're calling the lawyers, but shame isn't listening. We're doing everything we can to get shame out of there, but shame just won't get out of there. It's like the squatter that refuses to leave. And so there is so much we could say about ways that can help in that and how the good news applies to it. But I think this is the most fundamental thing we can say about how do you get the squatter of shame out of your heart? How do you get it out? How do you throw a stick of dynamite in to drive it out? How do you do that? And I think this is the the biggest answer we can say to it. In light, and this all is in light of the good news of Jesus, what Jesus has secured for us. In light of that, I think this is, this is the way out of shame. The way out of shame, the most fundamental thing we can say is that we have to be fully known. And in the middle of being fully known, we have to be convinced that we are still fully loved and delighted in by God. That's the way out of shame. To be fully known and at the same time To know that you're still fully delighted and fully loved by God. See, shame has this uh, weird way of working where it's always an issue of the shadows. Shame lives in the shadows. It doesn't want to be brought out to light. It doesn't want to be brought out into the open. It wants to stay in the dark in our life. This is the, the quickest way you can find where shame is in you. Ask yourself the question, what do I not want anyone to know about me? That, that is not, that's gonna take you really close to where shame lies. What if I sworn that for the rest of my life, I'm not telling anyone about? That will take you right down, to your, right down to the depths of your soul and where shame lives. And so the question is, how do you deal with that? The only way you can deal with that is by bringing that out into the light, being convinced that even when it's out in the light and you're fully known that God still fully loves you and delights in you. So I just wanna end by encouraging you toward that. And I want to do that by just helping you consider the parable of the prodigal son. Do You remember the story in Luke 15? In Luke 15, there is a young son and he looks up to the father. And in a moment of shameful disgrace, he looks at him and says, I want your money. I don't want you. So it's a way of saying, if I'm choosing between your money right now or your death, I'm going to go ahead and let's just say you're dead. Let me just have your money. I would rather you be dead if that's what it comes down to. So it's a shameful thing. It's shameful in any culture, especially in that first century culture. And so he, the father gives him the inheritance. And he runs off into the far country and he squanders all of that wealth in loose living. And as soon as he runs through his money, he also runs through his friends. He's trying to find employment to kind of sustain himself. And he fu- wakes up being employed in the middle of a pigsty. He's feeding pigs for this person, which would be the height of defilement for a Jewish man. So he's in this pigsty, and he wakes up one morning, and here's what he's actually contemplating. He's actually contemplating stealing food from the pigs because he's so hungry. And in this moment of shame and disgust and disgrace, the Bible says that he comes to his senses And that was the turning point for him. He decides, I am gonna start the long journey home. And I just wonder how many of us in this room right now need to start that journey home. We're in the far country and we need to come to our senses and start the journey home. So so he wakes up in the pigsty smelling all, you know, like pigs do. And he starts the long march home and he is full of shame. Eyes are cast low, head is hung low, And on the way home, he starts practicing his repentance speech. And here's how his repentance speech goes. He goes something like this. He's thinking about what am I going to tell my father who I've disgraced? I have brought shame on our family. What am I going to tell him when I get back? Here's what I'm going to tell him. Head down low, eyes looking at the ground, no eye contact. I'm going to say this. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I know that I've disgraced you. I've shamed you. I've shamed myself. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so just treat me as one of your hired servants. So he starts this long march home. And I just picture the, the dad, he, you know, as the story goes, it's likely that every day he's scanning the horizon looking for his son. And on this particular day, he sees him. Now, can you imagine that as a dad? And that, you know what the father does when he sees him? He doesn't stand on the porch demanding that his son crawl up to him in his shame. The father does what no first century man did. He hiked up his robe and he ran as hard as he could toward his disgraced son. And do you remember what happens when he gets there? His son, full of shame and sin and guilt, still smelling like a pig. Do you remember what he did? He instantly throws his arms around him. He hugs him and he kisses him and he embraces him. And about that time, the son looks back at his father and says, but father, I've got to tell you something first. Smelling all like a pig here. Father, I've got to tell you something. I know I've sinned against heaven and against you. I know I've brought disgrace and shame on everyone. And father, I know that I'm I'm no longer good enough. I'm no longer... I no longer deserve to be called your son. So treat me, and, and before he can get out the last line, remember the treat me like a hired servant? Before he can get out the last line, his father interrupts him. The father grabs him, jerks him back to the house, and he looks at his servants and says, we gotta kill the cow, we gotta cook the steaks, because it's time to celebrate. We're, we're throwing a party, because this son of mine who was lost in sin is now back, and He's found. Now, what is is Jesus trying to tell us in this story? What is he showing us? He's showing us this. The story is not about the son. It's not about the son's sin. Here's what the story is about. It's about the heart of God pictured in the Father who is so full of grace that it swallows up all of our sin, all of our guilt, and all of our shame. That's what it's showing us. That we can be fully known by God and expect a response like this father. In the middle of us trying to bring out all of our garbage and all of our shame and all of our disgust for God to interrupt us and to throw the party on our behalf. That we can be fully known by God and still fully loved. You know, like even those things that are, when you think about them, like you just cringe inside feel so defiled, so contaminated, so stained by them. God is saying, you, you can be fully known in that. And listen, I will still love you and delight in you. I will sing over you. I delight in you like that. That's what the story is telling us. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.